want you to turn tonight to Acts of the Apostles, second chapter, beginning reading at the 14th verse. We could almost, being Pentecostals, we could almost quote the scripture, but nevertheless we want to read it just the same, down to and including the 18th verse. After the church had been born, of course, in the second chapter, first part of it, they came out of the upper room, speaking in another tongue, and Peter standing up, 14th verse, with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants on my handmaidens will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that genuine scripture, Master, that's certainly been a challenge down through the ages, and certainly stands today as the greatest challenge probably yet to come. We thank you for your promise, and we know, Father, the complete fulfillment just awaits us. Anoint tonight, Father, let us speak words. That would be what you desire and not what we would desire. And give us unction to do it, Father, to speak and also anoint the ears that they might hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Tonight, for the next few weeks, I hope, I, I hope you don't feel like I'm insulting your intelligence. I'm not. But I want to deal with the Holy Ghost. There's just something inside of me that won't let me rest until we deal with the Holy Ghost. Now, the Holy Ghost is nothing new to the, nothing new to the major part of us here. And perhaps in these lessons and teachings and so on, I didn't come by it, just decide to do it and then just jot down a few things. It's been an intense study, wrestling with God in prayer. And trying to understand in these latter days what we are responsible for as God's children. Just what is our responsibility. And so, if we cross your theology, before we get done, you just wait. Just hold on, mark it where we seem to cross. And you think we have been er erroneous in some of the things that we say, then we stand corrected if we can be corrected biblically. If not, we refuse to be corrected by tradition or by man's idea and opinion. Is that all right? All right. So, like I said, you just hold on until they're completely finished because one thing that might appear contradictory in the beginning might be straightened out later on. So just hold all your questions or hold all your decisions until... We are comfortably through. I don't know how long it will take, 
but I feel a sense of urgency to me for a Christian, especially a Holy Ghost-filled Christian, it's an exciting time to be alive. Amen. Even in the midst of all the trials, in the midst of all the divisions and discord, in the midst of all the new ideas and opinions that's birthed almost every day, inside of the oppression that the powers of hell rain down, that oppression type of spirit that comes in, and all of these things, it's still an exciting time to be alive. I look back over the past days, and they have been glorious. They have been wonderful days. A lot of things was birthed through that, and the, there's an excitement about the old days. But friend, to me, as far as I am concerned, those days have passed. Men, women, boys, and girls have come and went. Excited, exciting preachers have ministered to the fullness, done the best they possibly could. Time marches on. Individuals, new generations come, old ones pass away. And in spite of it all, God still moves on. Now, whether you want to recognize it or not, every day that we live in this exciting time brings us closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, if we become closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we must realize not only is he responsible by bringing to pass some signs of his coming, but also we are responsible to be able to answer the many questions that's going to be asked that have never been asked before. I would like to challenge us tonight that we measure our own lives, no one else's, get you a big mirror someplace, put it in front of your face, and ask yourself the question, do I meet the prerequisite? Am I able to introduce this thing that I have in such uh, authority and such power and with such knowledge that it would challenge even the deep-seated traditions of those who are hungering and yet don't know where to turn. God is pouring out his Spirit. Amen. God has always poured out his Spirit from the time he started. He is pouring out his Spirit. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as far as I am concerned, is on the very edge of one of its greatest revivals. Perhaps the last great revival that we're going to see, the results, which will deliver King Jesus from the womb of the sky and usher in God's great kingdom that Christians of all ages has pined and longed and ministered far and desired to be a part of. It is coming. Can you say, man, it is coming. The Apostle Peter said, but the day of the Lord shall come. Regardless of what skeptics have to say about it, the day of the Lord shall come. Now, there's been a lot of revivals that sprung forth before, sprung forth under great men, leadership such as Luther and such as Calvin and Wesley and Moody. But the revival that I see, the revival that I think the apostles of old and prophets of old saw and we're beginning to see it come forth is different from those in the past. Different probably in two great areas. Instead of being confined to certain areas, this revival is going to leap the bounds of almost everything. And instead of being led by some particular person, a revival that we're going to see is going to have no certain leader. Personalities of man is going to diminish. You know, man builds churches and he builds great organizations on his personality and on his popularity. 
And when this man goes, so goes the church or the revival or whatever might have happened. But what we are going to see and seeing a little bit of it today is going to have no certain leader. Everything is going to be under the inspiration and power of the Holy Ghost. And it's not going to be contained in one area. It's going to be worldwide outpouring of the divine spirit and presence of Almighty God. Central theme of the baptism of the Holy Ghost is going to be the central theme of it, literally millions from all denominations, all walks of life with all ideas and opinions, going to be moved for the great power of God, and millions upon millions is going to leave their denominations and the barriers that kept them from being what God wanted them to be, and they're going to be torn down. This denominationalism is torn down again the middle wall of petition that has some way been reconstructed over the years by various denominations and leaders is going to be torn down again by the power of Almighty God. I get excited when I talk about the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I get excited when I realize that right upon the birds, no wonder God talks to these people, no wonder he challenges us with our plays and our programs and our isms and schisms and, and our playful nature and all of this, trying to incite us and excite us about something greater. We do have responsibilities. How many of you agree with that? We do have responsibilities. One of the major responsibilities of a spirit-filled believer is to teach and to be able to interpret this experience we have to the satisfaction of those out there that don't understand it. Amen. It's not enough to go up to them and demand that they have it. It's not enough for them to stand in their face and tell them they must speak in tongues. It's not enough for us to stand in that area and describe the power of the Holy Ghost in our life. We must be concrete enough in the Scripture to make them see where they're living is fire beneath their privileges. And I think we need to be challenged by that. Oftentimes we've shouted, we've spoken in tongues, we have demanded of individuals, and about all we can tell them is like the uh, blind man, I think, that Jesus healed. He didn't know anything other than, I was once was blind, but now I see. And sometimes about all we're able to muster up is, I don't know, one time I didn't have it, and now I have it. And then we expect everybody to believe us like that. Well, we're getting in a world that simply will not take our word out for it. They're looking, inspired to look by the Bible. And I'm challenging us tonight. Now, I don't know where you live. In other words, I don't know your your uh, uh, intellect as far as the Bible is concerned. Now, it doesn't take somebody with a college education to understand the Holy Ghost and how to explain it. It just takes somebody that's concerned about somebody else getting it and then getting into the Word of God. In other words, what I'm trying to say, I think, tonight is it's not enough for us to receive it and then relax and rest comfortably in the fact that we've got it. Amen? The church has went to sleep on the idea that, bless God, we're saved, and it doesn't seem to matter to us whether anybody else ever understands what we're talking about. Amen? We just make the demand, and we just lay it there and say it has to be done, 
And then when they question us as to why it has to be done, we don't sometimes seem to have the right answers. And then with the right answers, for the most part, we very seldom ever have the right spirit. Am I doing all right? You're up quiet out there. So don't get quiet all at once here before I get started. You see, it's good to have some of the right answers, but we need the right spirit to present them answers there. And a lot of times, it just can show to the world that there's a profound difference in our life. But as far as expounding, explaining, why do you need the Holy Ghost? What is the difference in it? Why did you receive it? Why must I have it? Is it biblical? And so on and so forth. Sometimes all of these things are alien to us. And we're totally inadequate of sharing this wonderful thing that we have with somebody else. To make them see it enough to become involved in it. Amen, Brother Hoskoff. Now, what we're going to talk about tonight and others is to benefit somebody just said in their heart, I think, well, why are you telling us about it? We received it. Well, that's why I'm telling you. It's for the benefit of those that have the Holy Ghost, where the evidence of speaking in other tongues, and have found opportunity after opportunity to deal with a hungry heart, and have left that heart still hungry with questions unanswered. I'm going to do my best to cover some areas that I think is extremely important for us as we progress in the Holy Spirit of God and accept the responsibility that God has placed upon us. You see, he didn't just give you the Holy Ghost to make you jump over a seat. He didn't give you the Holy Ghost to make you foxtrot. He didn't give you the Holy Ghost just to speak a few words in tongues. He gave you that power in order that you might be a witness for him. Isn't that what he said? You shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses of me. Amen. So the primary purpose of it all from the very onset is that we receive the power to be able to witness unashamed basking in the sunlight of the glorious beauty of God and realize we have something worth sharing. Amen. Now, traditionally, number one, now I want to be careful in this area. I really do, so there won't be any misunderstanding. It's been taught that it's necessary to tarry. Now, we dealt a little bit with that the last Sunday night, and I think maybe the last Wednesday night. Now, in a manner of speaking, the way they tarried in the upper room, which was waiting for the Holy Ghost to be sent, is not necessary for us to tarry in that area. Because when the Holy Ghost was sent down 2,000 years ago, it stayed down. I mean, it just don't go up and come down like a yo-yo. It stayed down. And so we don't really have to wait on it to come. But you need to notice this one thing. Jesus knew whenever he sent those 120, you're told all of them to go, he knew exactly when he was going to send the Holy Ghost. But yet, for some strange unknown reason to a lot of us, he sent them there probably ten days before he was going to send the Holy Ghost. Now, we covered this area a little bit. He sent them there to get them in one mind and in one accord 
turned everything else out of their mind so that the primary theme of what they were there for would finally dawn on them and then he could send the Holy Ghost. That vessel would be ready to receive. It would be emptied enough that something else could come in. And this is still necessary in our lives. Now a lot of people wait till they get to the altar. They never bother to pray outside. They never bother to write in their lives. They never get hungry enough to do without a little bit of food from the table. And then conviction moves upon them. Somebody makes the Holy Ghost sound good. And so they come and stand at the altar and hours of hours and hours of worshiping, praising God, saying the same phrase over and over and over. And then eventually human will breaks down and the Holy Spirit comes in. A lot so unnecessary had they prepared their lives at their homes or in their altar or in their place of prayer and then come and God would immediately pour out the Holy Spirit on their lives. And we could have done away in the past with a whole lot of what we call tarrying. But tarrying is necessary or waiting in other words getting involved with God until we clean out the debris in our life until one central theme alone remains there, and that's Jesus Christ and what He is in our life, and He alone is the central part of what we're waiting for. And then when that happens, we're ready for the Holy Ghost to come in. And so actually with some proper teaching on the Holy Ghost and how you receive it. Now, I don't mean by telling people how to speak in tongues. Don't get me wrong. And that's one of the areas I want you to not be uh, just mi misconstrue what I'm trying to say. Because I've been in places, I've seen probably it all, I've been in places where they stand at the altar and say, you say what I say, and then when they do, they say, you've got the Holy Ghost. I'm not talking about teaching them how to speak in tongues. I'm talking about teaching individuals how to receive the Holy Ghost. And when they receive the Holy Ghost, then they'll speak in tongues. But too often man is seeking tongues. All right, and we need to seek the Holy Ghost and the tongues part will take care of itself. It's just a natural part of it. After we receive the Holy Ghost, the tongues will speak out. It will be the evidence. But people can be brought to a point by proper teaching and making them realize you don't just come up and get this great thing without emptying ourselves out, can step quickly and easily into the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, if I didn't know that this would work, I wouldn't be saying anything about it. But we walked into a church, and I won't name the name, you'll know it. And stayed several months there. And we walked into that church, and there were several other men folk there in the church that had never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And a lot of them had tarried from the time almost that they were uh, old enough to know how to tarry, so to speak. And they'd come every revival and sometimes during every service they would come and tarry for the Holy Ghost. They tried everything. They had their heads shook off sometimes. Sometimes they pounded on the back. And as we've said often, some would say loose him and another would say hold him. One would say turn loose and the other would say hold on. You know the story. You know what it's like. Until they were utterly confused and despondent until they finally said it's not for me. If it was for me, I could receive it. And we dealt with the Holy Ghost in those areas dealt with it for quite some time, told them some of the needs in their life, 
what they would have to be concerned about. A lot of things we need to get rid of. A lot of clutter in our lives and minds we don't need, saints. Amen. We don't need it in there. We're so involved with living everyday life and keeping up with the Joneses that we forget that God is the central theme of our lives. And individuals need to realize that if they want Jesus, the gift, baptism, the Holy Ghost, they've got to think Jesus. They've got to think power. They've got to think anointing. They've got to think suffering. They've got to think ridding themselves of some things and make ready for the power of the Holy Ghost to come in. But after several weeks of teaching some of the things that we'll deal with tonight, these individuals came during a revival one by one. And every last one of them, without great fanfare but with joy and power, of Almighty God came and stood, lifted their hands to God in heaven, and surrendered their life and received the Holy Ghost and began to verbally speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they had sought and tarried and worked and done everything they could for several years. And here was, I don't know how many, I, I can't remember, there was Terry and Addison and Ron and on and on we could go of individuals that had thought the Holy Ghost wasn't for them. And yet they received it. They didn't have to pound the altar. They didn't have to slobber to mouth. They didn't have to do all of these things and thank God whatever it takes for you to get it, but I'm trying to tell you these things don't have to be if a mind is clear for God and ready for the Holy Ghost. It can be received without such great fanfare. It can just be opened up and it'll come in you and you won't have to worry about tongues. They're going to take care of this thing. Amen? Now we have some objections whenever we're talking about the Holy Ghost. And probably the most common objection among Christians, and you know that as well as I do, concerning the Holy Ghost stems from the difficulty that individuals have of seeing it as a separate second experience following repentance. You hear this whenever you talk to them about the Holy Ghost. I mean honest-hearted people. And you get to talking about the Holy Ghost and what it's like and they begin to say, well, I thought I received the Holy Ghost when I repented. And this is what you'll hear more often than not. And now, since it's a spiritual law that we receive in terms of asking, that's in Matthew 7, uh, Matthew 7, chapter 7 and 8 verse, uh, tells us that we ask, we receive. So, since the spiritual law is that we receive only when we ask, if people don't know that there is another experience for them, then they won't ask for it. And if they don't ask for it, then they are not going to receive it. So therefore, that lies immediately the initial task, helping people to receive the Holy Ghost, is to make it clear by the Word of God that there is such an experience beyond repentance. And we have to be careful how we present this. I mean, you can kill a person before he even becomes alive. And we need to realize that those who receive Christ as their Savior, according to John 3.16, whosoever believeth, now, how is that ghost? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, this believer. And they can also meet the one that baptizes them in the Holy Ghost. John said, I indeed baptize you with water, but there cometh one after me, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. He's mightier than I. So you've got to make them see that repentance is necessary. 
Oh, God, help us to not do away with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, help us not to minimize the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, help us somewhere, somehow, to stand and realize it is necessary for an individual to come to acquaintance with God and repent of all things that he's done wrong. And he becomes a repenter then. But yet after that, you need to make him realize that there's something else waiting him. Hallelujah. That's as grand and glorious as feeling the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanse him from all sin and from all iniquity. Amen. Now, the question is, is there not, and I've had this asked, isn't there a work of the Holy Ghost in the believer's life at repentance? Now, if we're not careful, we're going to tell them you don't have nothing till you receive the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, you just hold on to that. Don't you differ with me just yet, all right? You wait till I get done. But they ask now, are you trying to tell me that there isn't a work of the Holy Spirit in my life when I came to repentance with Him? And I have to tell them this, of course. Sure, there is a work of the Holy Spirit there. 1 Corinthians 12 and 3 says, No man can say Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Bible also tells us no man can come unto him except he's drawn by the Holy Spirit of God. So it stands to reason the Holy Ghost has to be active with that individual and there has to be a work in his life before he can even come to repentance. So we'll have to say that the Holy Ghost is present in repentance, but he's present there to introduce the sinner to Jesus Christ the Savior. And you have to make this distinction. We're not talking about the introductory ministry of the Holy Spirit to the sinner. There is that. There is the ministry of introduction. The Holy Spirit comes and introduces Christ to a sinner's life. He introduced Christ to me. The Holy Spirit had to draw me. It had to make me aware. It had to move upon my conscience. And it had to introduce me to the Savior. Otherwise, the night I would have never found him. And we're not talking, when we talk about the baptism and the Holy Ghost, we're not talking about the introduction to a sinner. We're talking and speaking about the empowering ministry of the Holy Ghost for the repentant individual. In other words, not that which comes and draws us, but that which comes and fills us. Hallelujah. And enters inside of us and makes a drastic change in our life. We're talking about an experience that Jesus promised when he told his disciples. Now, you've got to recognize this, saints. Those disciples already knew he was their Savior. Amen? And he told those disciples that already knew him as their Savior, he said, you will receive power. Okay? Now, are we going to say that those disciples had no experience with Christ, knew nothing about Christ, and yet here they were already knowing that he was their Lord and Savior, and then he pulls them out and says, you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And then he says, that power is to make you a witness 
But giving at Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying you start witnessing at home. I've heard individuals say, well, if I was someplace else where people didn't know me, I could be a good witness. You'll never be an effective witness anyplace else until you're an effective witness at home, in your hometown and in your home surroundings. Everybody knows what you were. Let then everybody know what you are. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Glory to God. Hallelujah. And the Scriptures draw, whether we want to believe it or not, and some of these things go against the grain of my early teaching, I'll have to say that. But whether we want to believe it or not, the Scriptures draw a very clear distinction between those two experiences, especially in the book of Acts. Now, first off, let's look at the book of Acts. It's the only record that we have in the entire Bible of the life and activities of those who were first filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, the Gospels are stories about the life of Jesus, and the epistles are teaching letters dealing with problems and uh, interpreting and explaining the promises of God. But the book of Acts records the actual life and the actual experience of the church. So if we ever get a desire enough to want to know how the church got started and what it was and what it was supposed to be, all we've got to do is read the book of Acts. It's still as real today as it was when it was pinned by the hand of those that were moved on and inspired by the power of the Holy Ghost. When we examine that book, now most of you will know these, but you just stay with me because I want to point out a few things maybe you don't know. When we examine the book of Acts, we find five passages that describe the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Now, number one, of course, is on the day of Pentecost. 120 gathered in the upper room. They were all believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you submit that to me? That they were all believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were his followers. They had witnessed his crucifixion. And many had witnessed his resurrection. They knew that he had died for their sins and that he was their risen Savior. And yet, in spite of all of that, they had heard him commission them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They had seen him ascend into the heavens, but knowing Jesus as their Lord and Savior was not enough. Amen? And if it was not enough, for those who tracked the Lord Jesus Christ for three years and a half and heard his miraculous teaching and watched him dig into the depths of further than any seminary would ever take you, if that was not enough for them, then, saints, it's not enough for the world today. Amen? At least not in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't enough. He told them in Luke 24, 49, to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. Now, there are a lot of people willing to satisfy both sides of the spectrum that say this is an elective thing. You can if you want it. It's a gift. But many priests of baptism has just been an elective course. Now, there's quite a difference in that. If you ever went to college, you know that you take some elective courses. You don't have to take them, but they're just elective and you can, but there are required courses that you have to take. 
to. It's very plain in the Bible that this is a required course for individuals to receive the fullness of Almighty God. Now, if I put this here because I want to be careful, and I want you to be careful, if not for salvation, then for a truly victorious life. Now, we want to watch when we're expounding the truth of the Holy Ghost to individuals and haven't received it and yet have met Jesus Christ as their Savior, have known what it is to feel the sin and all of these things that weighted them down for so long, to feel free in that and feel a certain change in their life. We want to be careful of telling them they don't have anything and never did. Amen? We want to be very careful with them how we handle this. And this, to me, has been a mistake. I'm just saying, if not for salvation, I think probably the abilities to attain what Christ has wanted us to attain, it is necessary. It is certainly necessary. But in order to live a victorious life, it is a must. And we need to let individuals know that they have never known true victory, have never known what it's like to feel true peace, have never known what it's like to feel the victorious cry of God's Spirit coming in and birthing us into a heavenly place that we have never been before. We need to make them aware that though they have repented and received and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, one of the greatest things is yet for their lives. And we need to respect them in what they have received. Pentecost has been turned off by a lot of us well-meaning because we have demanded, we have pounded, uh, we have put people in hell that don't belong in hell, and we have chased them away instead of gathering them in with the Word of God. And let them realize that although we believe it, we're not belittling who they are and what they are, other than there is a lot more that they need in their life and can have it. Amen? They can have it in their life, so we need to watch how we argue this point with people, with somebody that has repented. I've said this often, but my dad was, uh, well, he became a rebel in his later years. He was probably... One of the worst when it comes to condemning everybody else and so on, probably one of the worst. But he came, became a rebel in his later years. Consequently, in his later years, really, is whenever he probably did the most good with reaching people of other denominations who had embraced and knowing the good life and knowing the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he led me aside when I was first called to preach. Now, I've told you this before, but he led me aside and he said, Son, a hungry dog that's got a bone, don't go and take that bone away from him, he'll bite you. Because he's hungry and it's all he's got. And he's holding on to that. He don't have anything else. So you leave him alone because he'll bite you if you try to get it away from him. Now, I've seen a lot of people bitten. Amen? I've seen a lot of people turned off and bitter. You want to watch the hair raise up on somebody that has felt the presence of God in their life and you tell them they've never had anything? You want to watch them get ready to fight? They don't hear another thing you've got to say. 
You've already turned them completely off. They're not ready to listen to one thing else that you've got to say. But Dad said, son, what you do is you take a big old beef steak and you just throw that down there and that old dog will leave that bone because there's something better there. Hallelujah. So if we can just leave them with what they have and throw something better down there, we're not going to have to argue or fight with them. They're going to want it. Or we're going to have to put it in such a way that it is better. Amen. And this holy than thou attitude very seldom ever works. Amen. Now for ages men have tried to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ without the power of the Holy Ghost. Of course this is in direct disobedience to the clear command of Jesus who after he had commissioned the disciples to go and teach all nations, Matthew 28, 18, nevertheless, he said, in spite of your commission, you've got to go to Jerusalem and wait there because there's something you're going to need in order to be able to be the right type of a witness for me. Now, the only difference between an individual trying to preach the gospel without the Holy Ghost and somebody trying to preach the gospel and failing with the Holy Ghost is the fact that this individual has nothing to minister through him and the other individual is just refusing to let it minister to him. Every life filled with the Holy Ghost is not a perfect life because we simply will not walk as the light is shined upon us. But Jesus was simply saying in essence, paraphrasing this, that you have to be properly empowered in order to be a witness. Now that's not just talking about preachers either. That's talking about saints of the living God. And we not only have to be powerful enough and experience the power of the Holy Ghost enough, but we have to be knowledgeable enough on what we believe. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you stand on it? And you know somebody out there without the Holy Ghost couldn't, should never be able to get us up a tree and drive us in the corner where we don't have an answer. But as sad as it is, many educated individuals do. Because we have said, I've got the Holy Ghost. Well, the Holy Ghost is here to lead and guide you in the paths of all truth and righteousness. In other words, it's going to lead you into the depths of God's Word and into the righteousness of His Word. And at the end of our days, we're going to be able to speak only what we have learned from this book. A lot of people say, well, whenever it comes time, the Holy Ghost will tell me what to speak. He'll only tell you what you know from this Bible. He will quicken it to your mind. And if it's not in our mind, if we haven't stored that in that computer of ours, the Holy Ghost cannot quicken our mind to that. That's why Bible study, home study of God's Word, somewhere or somehow, we need to get it in our life. We really don't have much of an excuse. If we can't read well, there is cassette tapes filled with the Bible. Amen, Brother Hostel. So that we simply stand without an excuse. So Jesus was saying, wait a minute, you do have a job. You're going to have to witness, that's what it's for, but you're going to have to have some power to do it with. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. The 120 was empowered by the Holy Ghost. Miraculous evidence of their empowering was manifest by speaking in tongues. And then you could see it change. Not only did they speak in tongues, 
But there was a change in the characters of those individuals. And you know, that's what I look for. I like to see people speak in tongues. I like to hear them speak in tongues. And with my eyes, I like to watch and see is there a change in that individual or not? Has his life changed? Peter, that big coward, that big sissy that hid, made that great declaration when he was with Jesus because Jesus was his power then, and he made that great declaration, I'll die for you, Jesus. And he warmed at the wrong table. <laughs> yes, he did follow the fire off and denied his Lord Jesus Christ three times. And then here's that man experiencing the power of the Holy Ghost. You see, he knew Jesus. He knew who he was. He knew his power, only he just didn't have his power. And then the time came when the Holy Ghost come upon him, and this cowardly Peter, who had denied Jesus three times in that night of crucifixion and in that night of confusion, led the disciples into hiding a little bit after that, uh, after his resurrection, was so transformed that he stood up before those multitudes and told them that they had crucified the Lord of glory. That was a change in his life. He took a back seat to nobody or nothing. There was limitless power in his life, and he stood at his feet, and he preached. And he preached. And he preached with such anointing that 3,000 souls were saved that day under the inspiration and power of the Holy Ghost. Number two, we need to look at Philip's revival in Samaria. That is recorded in Acts, of course, the 8th chapter, 4th to the 17th verse. Now, as you all know, Philip was one of the first deacons. And he goes to the Samaritan city. As he preaches, a revival begins to break out. Now, you see miracles there, preaching from God's Word. You see signs and you see wonders. As God puts a divine stamp of approval and authority on the gospel message, and you watch, if you get into that, you watch individuals turn from paganism to Jesus Christ. You watch them as they turn from sin to salvation and from darkness into light. And the new converts then are baptized in the water in the name of Jesus. They are forgiven. Amen. They know Jesus Christ. Could anybody deny that? Baptized in the name of Jesus. But yet, now I want you to notice particularly when the word gets back to the...